I wonder how many current musicians will have on their shelves, uh, next to your biographies of or memoirs by Viv Albertine and Carly Simon and Carol King, Shebop, because it's a very famous book, it seems, Lucy O'Brien, who is the author of Shebop. Do you get feedback from various newer acts? Um, I get feedback from lots of people about Shebop, and I have done over the years... And there's nothing more moving than um, giving a talk somewhere and then some young woman, which has happened to me a few times, a young woman coming up to me. I remember one woman in particular coming up and saying, can I shake your hand? Uh, and, I, and I said, of course. And then she said, she changed my life. <laughs> and, then, you know, there was, there's been a few young women who've said that or something similar. And um, the way I see Shebop is that um, I, I see her as like um, a person. Yep. And she, she went out into the world in, when she was first published in 1995. And she's still out there doing her thing. And she gets updated every few years. Yeah, I, it, I originally wrote it as a polemic. And um, it's just one of those books that seems to have stayed and, and grown. And, and kind of um, uh, it occupies, I, I guess, quite a necessary place, really, uh, in terms of um, the music industry and female performers. Yes, uh, the book came out originally, I didn't realise it was so early, 1995. Um, yeah. It has um, since then been adapted for radio. There was a National Portrait Gallery show. So... When did all the Lumeries turn up to see their portraits at the gallery? That was for the second edition, which was 2002. Yeah. Yeah, there was some uh, big exhibition at the Portrait Gallery. The last edition was the 25th anniversary edition. Congratulations. Which was, uh, but also scary. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. But what was really sweet was, um, uh, so this was... a uh, 2020, it came out, 25th anniversary, the Jubilee edition. There was quite a lot of interest because people wanted to know the classic question, you know, how much has changed? I was able to talk about what's kind of happened over the last 25 years in terms of uh, women and popular music, and, um, how in, in, in lots of ways I see it as the old industry and the new industry, yeah. um, the post-internet music industry is one that is quite different and is in, and is um, much more fluid and, and much more gender fluid as well um, and changing uh, and uh, in a way that is quite different from the, the um, old school practices of uh, the um, kind of music industry of the 80s and 90s. Which you were involved in as a writer. You were at Time Out's rival City Lights. You were at the New Musical Express, which is now online only. So we'll try and hit all those beats in the next half hour. Before I forget, this biograph, this memoir you worked on with Deborah, with Skin, just amazing. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Brilliant book, because yeah. I knew very little about her as a person and even as an artist. And I was listening to uh, Stu Shee and the debut album while I was reading, and in a way that I couldn't really do uh, even... 15 years ago, because Spotify means that we have access to all music all the time. Because, oh. because you've worked on that book, were you able to immerse yourself in Skin's catalogue? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, it was great, uh, because we worked on that 
during the first phase of lockdown and that was great because she couldn't go anywhere (laughs) she she was in new york with her girlfriend and right when new york was the one of the worst hit places on the planet so she couldn't even leave her apartment um uh so actually that was a, a great time for us just to really concentrate on the book um and we'd have these um skype conversations pretty much every day and um, then I started drafting chapters and sending them to her and she would add thoughts or recollections and send them back to me. And so it became quite a co-collaboration yes. and uh, it was really great to kind of go through Skunk and Nancy's back catalogue and, and, and revisit a lot of that uh, music and what was going on at the time, you know, when uh, at each point when, you know, when each album came mm. out. And it really holds up that music because it was kind of the last blast of rock as a, a changing... Oh, I was listening to an album the other day and thought, well, yeah, rock and roll is good as an entertainment, but then so's Ode to Joy by Beethoven. That's 200 years old. So rock music will never lose its thrills. But I wonder if it can change things just because modern-day technology means that anyone with a phone can dance to something um i I can't remember if skin is on tiktok i know she's on twitter and uh, she's very vocal about it and gets her in trouble sometimes but she seems to have grown into dare i say a national treasure even by stealth yes yes and she's got a great instagram as well um yeah no i think what was really powerful about doing her story was we realised as we were working on it that um, an alternative story to Britpop was emerging an alternative story to the 90s Um, because a few books have come out kind of really foregrounding Britpop um, and it was a lot of very uh, represented as white male bands playing a certain kind of um, 1960s influenced pop music really um, with a bit of an edge um, and the thing about Skunk and Nancy was they came from a very different background and it was more drawing on kind of metal and um, but also funk and soul and a whole collision of different influences what was so uh, striking about it also was her being um, a bald black woman singing in what was um, at that time a very male-dominated environment. Well, it would it um, almost seemed that so Justin Frischman was the woman one, but then you had Lush and Echo Belly and Belly and uh, Sleeper. So hopefully oh. the story of Britpop and John Harris did brilliantly with the Last Party, which is one of my oh. favourite books in the music library to touch on. Well, it was the Justin yeah. Frischman love triangle with Brian Anderson and, and Damon, but. Skin takes her place because Sunk and Nancy had hits. They played festivals. They headlined Glastonbury famously before Stormzy, which she does well to point out in the book. Yes, yes, that's right, yes. So that entire era, and you you tell it and she tells it so well because I was very young. I only knew kind of, I knew hedonism. I called it hedonism in those days. (laughs) I I couldn't even pronounce it. Um, but Skunk and Nancy's music, they're on tour again. They're prepping a new album. Have you heard the new album? I've heard some of it. Yeah, it's great. And I saw them recently. Um, yeah, they came uh, here. They're in the UK. They, they played um, Grace Jones' Meltdown um, on the South Bank. And um, it was a really good night. And then uh, just a few days after that, they went and did Glastonbury. And I love the fact that she was wearing that bright jacket with clip rock on the back. Yes. Um, 
me the day after that awful Roe versus Wade ruling, mm. you know, the uh, anti-abortion ruling in um, the Supreme Court. You know, what, what is significant, I think, about skunk Nancy as well is the fact that they're still overtly political. They've, they've, they're really consistent in, in that respect. Um, and part of the reason the book received a lot of attention when it came out a couple of years ago was it was during the whole Black Lives Matter protests. It really was part of a whole re-evaluation of the way black artists are treated in the music industry generally. Uh, she, she, she was very much part of that, which I think is partly why she's um, become a sort of ambassador in a way. Yep. Uh, she, she probably didn't want to be, but by virtue of her position on stage in the middle. I also loved yeah. learning about... I don't think I knew about the Army of Me performance with Björk on Top of the Pops. I may have done, but it was great seeing that back. Björk and Skin, yeah. and, and the yeah. band, obviously. Uh, duet. Yeah. I've seen Björk perform live. I don't know if Björk was one of the musicians you interviewed among the... I think it was 5,007 interview 270 it's been said, yes. interviewees. But did you speak to Björk? Yes, I did. Yes, I have. Um, and I've interviewed her a few times. Uh, much taller than you'd expect her to be, because she's kind of written about as this sweet, kooky woman. Yeah, you know, thin pixie. Yeah, in, yeah. In terms, but, but she's quite a tough nut, you know, um, and, and very intelligent and, and um, uh, really uh, thinks artistically and creatively. There are certain acts who have been kind of artists working with sound. One of them had a number one recently, a newcomer from Kent called Kate Bush, whom, um, <laughs> who somehow, who, and it's interesting seeing how all these older acts are becoming legacy acts. Kate Bush has, she's hardly performed in the last 40 years. Would you have seen her on her first tour? Would you have gone to see her in the late 70s? I did, I did, um, and I remember it was this, um, I've written about it um, in Mojo, I, I was a teenage punk at the time, but I didn't see any contradiction between that and what Kate Bush was doing, because her work was um, very out there and very experimental, as well as kind of um, great melodies and, and, and great pop. Yeah, so I, I do remember that tour, and thinking it, it was this sort of amazingly poetic extravaganza there was the, the real standout moment was when she sang "Oh England, My Lion Heart." Uh, it was it was so moving, and we thought that that was going to be the first of many tours. But then she just didn't tour um, for years. You know, not until um, uh, was it a few a few years ago she did that residency at the um, Palladium. But I wonder if if she she said to herself, well, I don't have to tour because I can make music videos and that can do it for me. So um, Kate Bush is the one of the acts of the video era, often forgotten because she didn't tour. Uh, my mum and dad went to see the Blonde Ambition tour at Wembley. Yeah. This is pertinent to you because you wrote one of the many, many, many books on Madonna. Yours is probably the best. But when you were writing Like an Icon, this was 2007, so she'd just done Hung Up. She was uh, about to turn uh, 50. So what was the process of writing that book? And was it a commission um, or did you did you ask to do it? I'd, I'd 
always been interested in Madonna. I'd um, always collected and um, uh, collected cuttings and mementos and had all her records and I'd been to all her shows. It just seemed like the right time. You know, I was aware that she was about to come up to 50 and um, she was still really relevant, still doing innovative work in music. And I thought that, that that would be a good time to do her biography. For this one, I mean, in, in terms of a lot of my work, um, the way I approach it is I think female artists so often um, are written about in terms of their boyfriends or their sexual relationships or their per- everything but the music. <laughs> and because that's my background, is kind of as a, as a music writer, that's where I wanted to really focus on her as a musician and an artist hmm. and really dig into that and um, almost be fly on the wall in the studio because people had criticised Madonna and said, oh, she's just a mediocre talent. You know, she just happens to be quite good at dancing. Um, she's not a, that fantastic a singer. And, and so it was really looking at those myths and interviewing. For the book, I interviewed, you know, in the end with the second edition, probably up, up to about 80 people, um, including musicians, producers, choreographers, friends, you know, old high school friends, just to get a picture of who the real Madonna is and was as an artist and as a woman. It just, what I just really wanted to round out that picture. And it was very interesting to find out how involved, you know, in all her albums, how involved she's been with um, the, the kind of co-writing and production and she has a very collaborative relationship with her producers um, and has um, a good, very good, detailed working musical knowledge. All these things that people have kind of missed or overlooked, that was very important to yeah. include. I listened to Hit Parade, the, the podcast for American chart music, and I came across the phrase Veronica Electronica. Um, which seems slightly unfair. I mean, William Orbit did create the template for that album, Ray of Light. But Madonna was tapped in in the same way she was tapped into the Nellie Hooper, Massive Attack movement, and then later the club music of Diplo, I think she collaborated with, or Mireille on music, and Pat Leonard and Jellybean. So she seems to be the pop star who has her ear to what's going on in a a. 3am club. And that seems to be her greatest achievement bringing the club music to the charts yes yes for sure and she 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 writes great lyrics as well um and she keeps diaries she keeps journals and again you know when she works collaboratively she brings these journals in Mm. and she's worked she works very directly um like you mentioned Pat Leonard. Um, they had a great rapport, and that together they kind of created that album, Like a Prayer, which many see as her first big artistic statement. You know, you know, people sort of say, "Oh, well, it's just the producer," or it's just there's there's a consistency to all her albums, which shows an aesthetic that runs through each album. And you know, as Guy Sigsworth, the producer, said to me, "It's not just thirty years of great hair." Mm. <laughs> she you know, she had she had a vision that she that she takes through um, each album. I remember um, Andrew Morton wrote a book about Madonna. Was that more to do with a Madonna as celebrity? 
So did you try and redress that balance? Exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I felt there had been a lot of stuff about her as a celebrity. If we go back now, and you, you should look in, on YouTube, um, not just Madonna, but celebrity interviews in the 80s and 90s. It's quite gobsmacking the intrusive questioning that people um, and the scrutiny that uh, people subjected uh, a lot of those mainstream stars too. I mean, in a way, you could say, oh, well, you know, uh, it, it's, it's sort of like a devil's contract, you know, you, you wanted to be famous, so there you go. But it, it is quite gobsmacking, the insensitivity of some of the questions, mm. you know, about people's, the, the, the actual, you know, blow-by-blow details of their, their private lives and sexual peccadilloes, etc. No, my, my argument is, well, you don't want to know about mine, so why should I know about yours? I mean, I think we want to know a bit, but it's kind of... I think it's that celebrity chasing obscures the real... what's going on musically and artistically. And I don't think it's boring to write and, and really uh, explore the art that people do. And this is what I think with biography. There is a way to talk about the art and the music and the personal mm. life in a way that's engaging and interesting and illuminating. Um, uh, it just takes a bit of work. <laughs> well, by the time you wrote the Madonna book and you've done the various editions of Shebop, and we're in the music library, so all of your books, Lucy O'Brien, are there. And they include Dusty... Uh, a book that sprouted from an interview with her, um, which came out in yes. 1989, and Annie Lennox, uh, the Brit yeah. Award-winning singer, who they Annie Lennox seemed to just turn up and win the best British female. But there's a reason for it. Um, what's Annie like as a, a human um, being? As a human being, um, out of all the people I've interviewed, and I've interviewed a lot, she seemed to me the most compassionate. Um, and I say that because usually as a journalist, you're kind of, you, you sit there and you, you're given your allotted interview time and you, you ask questions of this, uh, I, you know, maybe very well-known person or not so well-known person and they talk about themselves and then the interview's finished. But with Annie Lennox, I was, I was kind of slightly um, uh, surprised because it was like halfway through the interview, she asked me a question about me. <laughs> and, you know, and a really quite, kind of quite a sweet, concerned question. I thought, whoa, whoa, you, you are actually a, a really compassionate person, proper compassionate person. And I know she wasn't saying it um, to be fake or anything. I, I think she, she genuinely cares. And I think that actually comes through um, in her music in her charity work, she's actually someone who is, you know, talking about sensitivity, she's someone who's incredibly sensitive. Um, and maybe have there been a lot more language, the same language there is around mental health and anxiety today, I think she probably would have contributed to that conversation yeah. back, in the, back in the 80s. I love, um, I love that song, Walking on Broken Glass. I saw Peter John Vitesi perform it at the Edinburgh Jazz Festival and I just I love how it bounces along and how her vocal is great and she was one of the yes. 270 people interviewed for Shebop. Um, yes. Was yes. Susie Sue interviewed? Yes indeed yeah. yeah. 
love Susie Sue. She was one of my original icons when I was a punk. I was totally inspired by her. I have got John Azelwood's book, Love is the Drug, which is in the music library, and it's um, a, con- a compendium of journalists writing about the artists that they admire. You say that Susie was the one who knew. Um, I love yeah. how you'd say you would translate Virgil uh, before lugging the drums to your gig as one of the Catholic girls. It was inspired by Susie, who taught you how to spin your own myth to become somebody. Um, so do, do you still speak to Susie? Um, I, I mean, uh, I haven't seen her for a little while, but it, it, it was one of these things, and, and journalists will tell you that there, there's... We, we often have a favourite artist that we get on well with and then we find ourselves interviewing them um, time and time again. I've probably interviewed her about three or four times at different stages um, in her career. So sometimes, you, you know, you, you feel... I, I, I think friendship's too strong a word, but, you know, you definitely build a rapport with particular artists. Um, and what was lovely about that was... I idolised her so much when I, when I was a teenager. And then to meet her and talk to her, you know, in a way that felt very equal was um, was just really inspiring. And, and the more I look into it, you know, it's not that unusual. You think about um, that's the way a lot of musicians, artists, writers kind of build on their work is um, there's someone that they admire and they um, maybe take inspiration from them or they might try and sort of copy their style for a bit and then they end up meeting them and then becoming friends with them. There's so many people that that happens to um, that I think it must be a natural process. Did you, did you tell her you were truly in love with her? <laughs> maybe latterly. But yeah, I, I love the description. Uh, this essay is brilliant. Tell- me to f off i would have I yes well she's got yeah, form she's yeah. got rather form doing that. that yeah, yeah. <laughs> i don't think i would have dared <laughs> i loved her she put out an album about 20 years ago here comes that day was the single and i loved that because it was a side of Susie that i didn't i knew all the the punky stuff uh but yeah. she again an artist who is ripe for rediscovery by a younger generation um definitely definitely But at the time yeah. she was recording, you were at Leeds University, a fine city with a yes. fine set of universities. And of course, Leeds was the centre of post-punk what, with Gang of Four. But I didn't yeah. realise that because of the Peter Sutcliffe murders, women were actually under a curfew mm. at that time. Mm. How odd. Well, it was scary. It was really, really scary. So this was 1980. Jacqueline Hill, who was the last woman that he murdered was actually a student in my English department. Mm-hmm. So it was very close to home, literally close to home. I mean, it was it was on the bus route that I took the bus home that that, that, that murder was done. So um, I, re- I remember uh, we were told um, by the police um, that we weren't to go out after dark, um, or if we did, we had to be accompanied by men or be picked up um, by men if we happened to be in town and we wanted to get back to the halls of residence. So it was really heavy. And also, I think, you know, the thing about Leeds is it's always been um, a centre of radical feminism, and I do think a lot of that was as a result of Sutcliffe and that kind of reign of terror, if you like. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because a lot of us felt so restricted 
um, because of that curfew. Um, and I remember opposite the university, on daubed on one of the walls in huge um, uh, letters was curfew on men. <laughs> mm. yeah. yeah, well, it reminds me of Lysistrata, the Aristophanes play where the woman went on strike and didn't, didn't want sex because they wanted fairer rights. Uh, cut to 2,500 years on, uh, and you're in the NME offices. Was it basically yes. you, Barbara Ellen and Catelyn Moran and Julie Birchill? Was that uh, it? No, no. That, um, that, yes, the, the, I, I know them all, yeah. but we're, we're all slightly different times. Um, so I was there... I kind of did my first review in 83, and I, I suppose I was there till 87. Um, Barbara Ellen came a little bit later. Oh, um, okay. she, yeah, no, I mean, she was there, she was there, I, I think, from about 1985, 86. Um, so, yeah, no, absolutely. So she was kind of there at the same time that we were there with um, uh, Swells and David Quantic and Barney Hoskins and... You know, Gavin Martin. It, it, it was, it was, it was a great incarnation of NME. It really was. It was a bit like going to this amazing academy, <laughs> yeah. because it was, it was so competitive. But everyone wrote out of their skins. You know, we, 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 we pushed each other uh, in our own ways um, mm. uh, in terms of our writing, and really stretched ourselves. Um, and I learnt so much from being on enemy at that time. No, I've read Andrew Collins's book and he told the story of the, the early 90s and I've spoken to the great Stuart Cosgrove who's got a book who's, which has just come out, which I think is going to be one of the books of the year and I haven't even read it. From what I researched, you were good friends with Stu. Are you, do you still listen yeah. to him on, on the weekends, on Off the Ball, or is that not your thing? Yeah. Stuart, Stuart and I were, were an item for certainly all the time we were at NME oh, and, and after. They were, we were called various things, but the Celtic Soul Collective was one of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there was myself and Stuart and Paolo Hewitt and Shauna Hagen. Um, and it's because we were interested in a lot of the same things like hip-hop and soul music. And, um, and we all came from you know non-English backgrounds, non-English heritage you see the world in from an angle, I think, you know, if you're coming from an Irish or Scottish background. Mm -hmm. It's just different. It's a different way of looking at the world um, and a certain kind of humour, uh, wry humour. That's right. Um, and Pat Long's really book, The History of the NME, um, which was came out about 10 years ago. It's a lovely little book. Um, every oh. Everyone from that era, the 70s and 80s, when there was no internet and... Uh, Brad Anderson, I've just read Brad Anderson's book and he talked about them being a music press band uh, because they were hyped by the music press. Uh, but do yeah. read History of the Enemy to, to find out more. I just wanted to ask you about a quote from, from you, Lucy O'Brien, about City Limits when you were there knocking oh. the sacred cows down. You said every, you felt like the last cog in a factory assembly line. Is that why you moved into literature? Because you could do a more sweeping review of something than just being a kind of consumer guide for the people of London. Yeah, yeah. well, I think what happened with music journalism was um, certainly as we progressed through the 90s, the whole idea of branding really took over. And the star system, I mean, I know Paul Morley has critiqued this really well, is that once you introduce the star system, um, it was um, 
so much about kind of cataloging and, and, and being a consumer guide. And all the ideas that I used to love to explore on NME, you know, that those kind of freewheeling ideas, suddenly there wasn't really a place for that, you know. It, um, and, and, and I found it a bit boring. So um, I thought I need to stretch, myself, keep stretching myself. So that's when I kind of moved sideways more into books and also into academia, um, because that gives you the space to really fully explore things. Yes, uh, that reminds me of Ian Penman's little book of essays. And Penman, like Morley, um, seems to like these flights of fancies. I think Paul Morley is, sometimes I like him, sometimes I don't want vast Gramscian paragraphs of common nouns and proper nouns. But there is no writer like Morley, um, I think. with the music press um, certainly in the, the, the kind of late 70s 80s 90s it was about I think what, what, what it was in essence was pushing language to its um, uh, extremes and finding new ways to express these cultural ideas that were coming through and the politics and the music so much was going on you had, you, you had to kind of capture that energy and you had to capture that energy in language um, so I think I think that's where music journalism was really like a pioneering literary form, and I've I've said this a few times, um, uh, partly because I I ended up kind of writing about it in academia as well, um, but that's something that we need to be proud of in the UK. I think we we really pioneered a lot of that new kind of music language and music writing style in the same way that we pioneered punk, you know. There is a book coming out this year called We Peaked at Paper. I think it's, a, it's an, a com- compilation of the music press from that glorious era. The music press still exists today. I mean, Will Hodgkinson, whom I'm going to speak to in a few weeks, is the chief rock critic of The Times. Um, oh. Alexis Petridis co-authored Elton John's book, which was brilliant. Yes. Uh, he's at yes. The Guardian, chief rock critic. Uh, I've spoken to Ian Winwood and Michael Han, who are luminaries. Uh, And of the newer generation, it seems to be what I call a quality act journalism. It's less about the music and more about what skin pigmentation or genitalia you have. I don't know if you agree or disagree with that. (laughs) Oh, can you explain a little more? This is fascinating. Well, I'll I'll be very quick. But um, in the Equality Uh Act, uh, it meant that certain characteristics were protected, which meant that you couldn't discriminate on certain grounds. So it means that music criticism has become cultural criticism. And rather than talking about semi-quavers, you're talking about kind of... Um, what Beyonce says about the queer black community. And that's less music journalism than the reception of the music. Right, okay. Yeah, uh, gosh, we've only got a few minutes, haven't yeah, we? I both could, sides of I A4. Could, I, yeah. I could, be, I could be here all day. But, I, I, you know, I, I do think there's space to explore cultural ideas, um, and I think it's really important to do that. But I think you always have to anchor it in the music, uh, well, that's what works for me, anyway. I mean, I don't want to be prescriptive for anybody else, but that's what works for me, because actually it's the music that holds all the information you need. It holds all the information you need about someone and their psyche. You just have to listen to it. It's all there. Yes. Um, and that's what I find magical about music. You know, whenever I get stuck, when I'm doing my biographies or whatever. I just go back to the music and then it and then it moves me forward in a completely different way. You know, it gives you insight. So 
that's it. That's what I would say, Good. is listen to music. And there is a project coming out next year of which I know nothing, uh, but we were talking off air beforehand. I can't wait to read the next project. Uh, the final... I, can say, I can say, yeah, that I'm working on a biography of Karen Carpenter, the wonderful Karen Carpenter, which will be out um, uh, in January. Fab. I will try and get to some of the events surrounding that book. Does it have a title? Uh, Lead Sister. Good title. That's brilliant. Yeah. Um, the the final question I wanted to ask um, is about women getting a raw deal. Kesha, TLC. I don't know if you followed the fiasco with Ray, mm. the songwriter Ray, Rachel Keane. Uh, I also learned that Marin Morris, who's a country act, now owns her publishing do you think that is the important thing for a female act, is to actually own their music? I think it's crucial. And, you know, Kate Bush very sensibly um, owns her music. So, you know, with Running Up That Hill, she's laughing. Yeah. Um, so I do think, uh, historically, that's where women have been very exploited um, in not having ownership or proper, not only ownership, but proper credit for the work they do. Quite often women are involved in production, they don't get proper production credits. So, yes, it's ownership and authorship. That's, that's what um, you need um, to really progress as a female artist. Um, the more I think about music, it's similar to how I think about football. I love football, I love music, but hate the industries surrounding it. I think it is a scandal what's going on with streaming, uh, royalties. Yeah, but, um as, as we're seeing today, we've got Wet Leg, the biggest band in Britain, Olivia Rodrigo, one of the biggest stars in the world, Lizzo, who is making Republic Records millions through being herself. Yeah. So it's a great time yeah. to be not a man in music. Uh-huh. Um, whose books do you want to read? What, whose memoir or biography do you want to read about in the next few years? Ah, right. Oh, what a wonderful question. Oh, my goodness. I've been reading so many recently that are just great. Um, my good friend Mickey Berenier's got her um, memoir coming out soon. That's really fantastic. You know, that's her own take on Britpop and shoegaze, you know. Yeah. Patti Smith's um, memoirs. Carrie Brownstein from Sleet Kinney wrote a fantastic book. Um, Tracy Thorne is a, is a, is a brilliant yeah, writer. Brilliant book. There's this real kind of flowering of um, uh, female rock writing, which is which is just great. And they all uh, surf the wake of Shebop, uh, which all the all the editions are in the music library. It can't wait to hear Lead Sister or read about Lead Sister next year. Lucy O'Brien, thank you very much. I'd better let you get on uh, back to birds suddenly appearing and the book. In collaboration with Skin, which is now in paperback, it takes blood and guts. Do yourself a favour and read that. Cheers, Lucy.